We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Okay, welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was a first-team All-American quarterback in 1972 and the NFL MVP in 1976. He's also a key player in what has been an amazing run of quarterbacks coming from his home state of Louisiana. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rustin Rifle, Mr. Burt Jones. Burt, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Thank you very much, Rich. I hope it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you in the next hour, right? Um, Burt, usually I, I like to you know, just kind of go through the arc of, of a guy's career, you know, your high school years, your college years, your pro years. But you obviously have you know, a little bit of a unique situation in that your dad was a star football player also. And I'd love to kind of start off talking about him a little bit, just because he played on some iconic teams also growing up. We're talking about Dub Jones, Burt's father. Um, you're, you're both from Ruston, Louisiana. He's from Ruston. He went to Ruston High and then went to LSU and Tulane, right? That is correct. Uh, we both, uh, my father moved from the country post-Depression, uh, 1930 four or five or something like that to, to the city of Ruston, <laughs> all, all of probably three or 4,000 people. Um, he ultimately was a, a star football player and at first went to LSU and then transferred to Tulane kind of during the war years. Kind of an interesting story. He played at Ruston High School uh, under Coach Hoss Garrett, who was also my high school coach, believe it or not. Uh, and so out of high school, it was just before the war, uh, before the U.S. engaged in the European or Pacific conflict. And so he went to LSU uh, for his freshman year. And uh, back then, different than I, when I went to LSU, freshmen could play and he did play. Um, and what's kind of unique about it is that my father played for LSU and Tulane was on the schedule every year and he played for LSU and beat Tulane. And then after his freshman year, 
we we joined World War II, uh, and and everybody enrolled. Uh, he enrolled in <clears throat> the Navy program, which was a B twelve program. <clears throat> Excuse me. And LSU was an Army school. Tulane was the Navy school, so he transferred to Tulane and played the rest of his career out uh, at Tulane. And while playing for Tulane, of course, he played against LSU and he beat LSU as, as the, the running back for Tulane, which to my knowledge, and, and it's the only time anybody has played for LSU and beat Tulane and then played for Tulane and beat LSU. Now, it made my grandfather happy that he was going to Tulane because, well, he was from, my grandfather was a doctor here in Ruston, my mother's father, but he went to Tulane. He went to Louisiana Tech. And then during medical school, he went to Tulane uh, and paid for his education in medical school by playing both football and baseball. And he was an All-American in both football and baseball and is a member of the Tulane Hall of Fame, as is my father today. So um, I thought hard, long and hard about going to Tulane, but they just weren't playing as competitive football as what I would like to have. But I've always been a, a Tulane fan also. Sure. Okay. And then, and then after he wraps up his career ultimately at Tulane, at that time, you've got the NFL and the old All-American Football Conference, and he's actually the number two pick in the first round of the draft, something years later you would do also, um, and ultimately decides to sign with the old All-America Football Conference, and after a year or two, ends up in Cleveland playing for Paul Brown and the Browns. Uh, he played eight years in Cleveland, and I think he won six NFL championships. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was a, a storied career and it, it kind of made it unique for, for I'm one of seven children, but we all grew up as crazy as it sounds, you know, the autograms of Dante Lavelli, the Max Speedy's, the Marion Motley's, uh, all of these were just friends of daddy. We didn't really realize that they were so special, uh, all the thing of, I wish I'd known what I knew now when I was a kid and I would have looked at it a little bit differently. But then after he retired in, I think, 55, he went back to the Cleveland Browns um, as the offensive coordinator and kind of uh, assistant head coach under Blanton Collier. And so from that time, uh, back then, I think they only played 12 games. Uh, so, you know, they went to training camp and then they were all home by Thanksgiving. It's, entirely different story now it's a year-round occupation both for players and coaches but my father would always come back to Ruston and uh, he's he bought a lumberyard a retail lumberyard and started a business back then but when he went back into coaching he, he liked being at home and he liked being around his family and he said well I'll coach but you know I don't want to miss summer with my children and my wife so uh, they made a concession that not only did daddy go to training camp, but our whole family, my mother, my sisters, my brothers, we would all go to Hiram College and we slept underneath the cafeteria. Although some of the boys like myself and my brother Ben, we would, uh, they would farm us out to somebody like Gene Hickerson or, or Leroy Kelly or Jim Brown or somebody. 
and we we would hole up in their in their rooms at night. So it was a rather unique environment to grow up in. Uh, I I was the ball boy for the Cleveland Browns from 1962, and actually I went to the first co- uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame game in Canton, and I think it was in '62 prior to them building the facility. And then the next year we went back down to the facility. So I was a ball boy on the sidelines during training camp and in the summers. And, and it was all really cool. I mean, warming up, you know, Frank Ryan and Jim Nanowski and, and hiding in Jim Brown's locker every day and jumping out and he'd act like you were scared. You know, these are the things you do. Everybody does that, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he he's coaching the offense. He's, you know, the coordinator and coaching the running game and the passing game. You've got Paul Warfield, Jim Brown, Leroy Kelly, Gary Collins. I mean, he, you know, after having been a legend and playing with legends, now he's coaching the legends. Pretty cool. Yeah, it really was. And uh, Paul Warfield, you mentioned Paul. Of course, uh, Paul transitioned that time in Cleveland to my playing time in Baltimore. So I played against Paul. Uh, when he was uh, with the Dolphins, but uh, I was, we had, they had a reunion and it must have been the Cleveland Browns, I'm speaking of, 2004 or 2014, uh, which would have been what, 50 years of their last championship game in 1964 when the Cleveland Browns beat the Baltimore Colts 27 to nothing. And, Paul and I were always friends, he, and he, of course, and he and my father, as well as Jim Brown and all the players uh, throughout uh, our lifetime. I mean, Jim came down probably 15 years ago and stayed with Daddy and, you know, rehashed old times, and they were great friends. And Paul Warfield came up to me and said, Bert, I'll never forget this story. And Daddy had told me the story. Uh, Paul Warfield was running back at Ohio State. They drafted him to be a defensive back. He was on the defensive side of the ball and was going to be one whale of a defensive back. But Danny kept watching the skill levels, and, and he went to Howard Brinker, who was the defense coordinator at the time, and great friend and father. Image to me, you know, they were, all of us were raised in a little pack, you know, all the children of the coaches. Uh, but Danny went to, to Howard and said, Howard, I think Paul needs to play on offense. He needs to touch the football. This guy has unbelievable talent. And so this is, they had a rookie camp and then they had the first week of training camp. And after that first week, uh, Paul told me, he said, they called a meeting and they asked me to come to the coach's office. Well, <clears throat> that, those are the, the, the words of a Turk, as we used to call it, uh, you know, uh, the coaches want to see you and bring your playbook. Well, it was kind of the coaches want to see you and bring your playbook. And so Paul walked in there. I'm the number one draft choice. Have y'all cut me already? What, what's the deal? And so daddy said, now, Paul, I know you're great. You're going to be a great defensive back, but I really think you need to be a wide receiver. And he goes, who? I thought it was cut. We <laughs> 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 laughed about that and we laughed about it, but, uh, uh, that that is how Paul Warfield made a transition from defensive back to a wide receiver was under my father's tutelage. Uh, so uh, I, I saw him develop, of course, not knowing what I was looking at when I was 
there in training camp and then, of course, playing against him in Miami, knowing just how great a player he was. Oh, yeah. Um, and then um, and then then you're in high school in Ruston, Louisiana. Now, what, what did you play besides football growing up? Uh, everything. OK. <laughs> uh, it, it was the beginning of the overlap, but I was, uh, uh, you know, you can boast about yourself when you turn 70. But right. I was a baseball pitcher. As a matter of fact, I was the youngest pit player on the American Legion team three years in a row. If, uh, I was there 14, 15, and 16, the youngest player, because it was a 17, 18-year-old league, and I was a pitcher. And then I pitched for Ruston High, and then after my sophomore year, uh, I think this is the maddest my father has ever gotten at me as it relates to, to sports. And I came home and I said, Daddy, I'm, I'm not going to play baseball anymore. I want to run track uh, so I can increase my speed and be a, be a better football player. And at the time, I, I was a much better baseball player than I was football. But, you know, as my first grade teacher, Miss Ball, said, you know, first day of school, they ask you what you want to do. And the typical, I want to be a policeman, a fireman, uh, the president of the United States. And this is before TV for the NFL, really. And I said, I'm going to be a professional football player. And she said, well, if you can't be a professional football player, she used to tell me the story years after, what are you going to be? And I said, oh, no, I am going to be a professional football player. That's what I am going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Leave so, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. So I played all sports. I, uh, football, uh, basketball kind of oh, – overlap with football so I did early on but after my freshman year I didn't play basketball I played on the baseball state championship team my freshman and sophomore year and then after my sophomore year I concentrated on running the hurdles even though I was not very good I threw the javelin four or five times my senior year and, and won the state championship <laughs> uh, and and so then I was the fifth man on, on the mile relay team, which is the worst position in the world because all you do is train and never get to run in the meet. Right. Uh, it was good conditioning and, and it was a, a good discipline to make me a better football player. It, it's interesting you say you won the, the state meet in the javelin. Wasn't a another Louisiana quarterback who we'll talk about in a little bit, but Terry Bradshaw, wasn't he like a record holder in the javelin? Oh, he was. Yeah, he was. But I was always nervous about the javelin because everybody said you'll hurt your arm throwing the javelin. So what I would do, and I didn't know how at the time, we didn't really have a, a track coach. Per, we, we did, but the field events weren't that great. So I'd just take three steps and throw it, you know, one, two, three, boom. And, uh, you know, uh, Terry, I think, threw it 244 feet, something like that. But he was, you know, he, he, he was very good, had a good arm. Uh, and I, I didn't know how to throw it. Matter of fact, before the state meet, after I had signed to go to LSU on the football scholarship, Joe May, the LSU track coach who was there for the event, he, he came down there literally before we started our event and he taught me how to run up to the line and throw it. <laughs> <laughs> so Coaching you up. a hot skip and a throw. I was running to the line to throw the javelin, but yeah, I thought, what I threw, 210, something like that. And then, 
I tried to pursue my javelin career at LSU because I hated train. I hated spring training. I thought it was where everybody got hurt and you just beat up on yourself. So I went out for the baseball team freshman year. Baseball coach said yes, but if you can get permission from Coach McClendon, you can. Well, he 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 nicks that, and then uh, between my that would have been my sophomore year or junior, I can't remember. I went for out for tennis and track <laughs> in the spring to make the team so I could get out of spring training. But You really didn't want to play spring football. <laughs> I, I really didn't. And, and lo and behold, I tore a knee up in one spring uh, spring game. But I think uh, Joe May was still the track coach. He taught me, and, he, and we landed up through the javelin. And he says, okay, Bert, do you realize that with that throw – you just won the SEC championship. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, yeah. I mean, you know, 245 feet is a long way. And so I said, well, get me out. But to, to no avail, it, it didn't happen. So I got to go back to spring training and get my knee operated on again. And all is good. <laughs> and so, so you're at LSU. You're playing for Charlie McClendon. Like you said, you, you can't play your freshman year. Um, they win the SEC. Mm-hmm. And then your sophomore year, I was the designated passer. I'd go in on third downs. Oh, is that is that what it was? Okay, with Buddy Lee, you would rotate yeah. in with him. Okay, um, and you guys, you guys have a hell of a year, and you you play Nebraska close in the Orange Bowl, which is effectively the championship game. They end up winning, um, and then and then the next year, then Buddy Lee graduates. The next year, you're kind of splitting time with Paul Lyons, and then you have a big game against Notre Dame at home. And that kind of establishes you as the starter. Actually, the first game uh, I started early and we lost against Texas A&M. Now, Coach McClendon was a believer in playing multiple players at one position, especially quarterback. I think early in his career, he lost his quarterback and didn't have anybody else. And he said he'll never get in that position again. Paul Lyons, a dear friend, even to this day, uh, uh, was the, the other quarterback that I played for. And he has an NCAA record that probably will never be broken. And that is he was a starting quarterback for LSU when I was named consensus All-American <laughs> while playing for LSU. So that, you know. That, that's a record that he, he, we talk about all the time and laugh. Uh, yeah. But the answer is yes. I, I, the first game I really started my junior year was against Notre Dame. And, and, of course, we had lost to Notre Dame in South Bend the year prior, my sophomore year, and, and we almost won. And we lost three to nothing. I think we had one play that was called back that I completed to my first cousin, Andy Hamilton, if my memory is right. That would have set up a, a, a touchdown that we would have run. But make a long story short there was a holding call no big deal it, it, i'm sure it happened and so uh, south louisiana is predominantly catholic and uh so playing notre dame in tiger stadium for the first time was a major event uh, all, all my friends in south louisiana had to go to the priest to find out if they could pull against notre dame and he did give them permission and so but what made it even funnier is my father's teammate with the Cleveland Browns happened to be the coach for Notre Dame and was a good friend of my dad's, Eric Parsegian. Oh, right. Of course. Okay. Yeah. 
Air Parsegian was a coach. Matter of fact, when we played him my sophomore year, mom and daddy, he retired from coaching with the Browns because I was going to be a senior and my other brother was a senior playing for Louisiana Tech. And he said, I, I've got to see him play. I, I just can't be gone. And so that's when he, he hung up his, his coaching cleats. Uh, and sophomore year we were playing and, and they'd go to the games and, and of course a player gets a ticket. I, we didn't get tickets from Notre Dame. I said, daddy, I can't get you tickets. He said, oh, it's not a problem. I can get in. <laughs> so my sophomore year, I'm walking out to warm up and I look right behind the bench and guess who's standing there at six feet four, 210 pounds is my father on the Notre Dame bench. So that didn't sit well with the coach either, but it, it was funny. But that error got him tickets right behind their bench. He could at least put us on the home side. <laughs> uh, but uh, in that game, we did have a wonderful game. Uh, they were extremely talented and, and, we really threw the ball a lot. I think I threw the ball 11 times that game, but completed nine of them. <laughs> and uh, all through my career, I had somebody, at least two people uh, from my high school backfield, Alan Shorey, then my first cousin, Andy Hamilton, was my wide receiver. Then it came Steve Rogers. My, there were always two from Ruston High in the backfield for LSU, and sometimes three uh my entire career at LSU so uh that, that was always kind of fun too but against Notre Dame it was a huge win you know 28 to 8 I think not sure what of the score but it was a big game and at that time it was a big game for me because I think I threw for two touchdowns and ran for one and so all of a sudden you know that was the beginning of my hey he, here's your quarterback at LSU right and then, and then the next year, like you know, I mentioned at the top of the show, you're the first team All American. You're in the Heisman race, which ultimately goes to Johnny Rogers, uh, with Greg Pruitt right behind him. But you're in the conversation. Um, you know, once again, the team is, you know, I think you were nine, two, and one that year. But basically, every year you're kind of a top ten team, um, and or better. You know, I think you were seventh a few times. Um, and then the Colts in the '73 draft. No. Let me go back for a second because the Colts are interesting. In 1970, they win the Super Bowl with Don McCafferty. It's kind of an ugly Super Bowl, but hey. Um, and McCafferty is a Brown, a Paul Brown guy. And yeah. in 1971, they're a playoff team. And obviously, Johnny Unitas, who, you know, John Unitas hung the moon. <laughs> exactly. Christian during that tenure. <laughs> exactly. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But then 1972 starts off badly and the team is one in four. And, uh, oh, and I should also say one of the crazier things in NFL history happens. <clears throat> Carol Rosenblum owns the Colts and he, Bob Ursay buys the Rams and they basically swap teams. So Ursay right before, like, well, I guess during the 72 season, Ursay becomes the owner of the Colts. Joe Thomas is installed as the kind of head of football operations, general manager, kind of the guy in charge of football. The team starts off one and four under McCafferty, who two years ago has won a Super Bowl for them. And Thomas tells him to bench Unitas and put in Marty Domres, who they've just picked up from San Diego. McCafferty refuses. McCafferty gets fired. Right. And so Domres, so 
McCafferty's fired and they put in John Sandusky to coach the team the rest of the way. Dom rest starts. And then at the end of that season, Howard Schnellenberger is named the head coach. He's the offensive coordinator of the Dolphins, knows Thomas. And then they draft you and they trade Unitas to San Diego. Tell, tell me about, you know, kind of that period of, of your life. You're the second pick in the draft and all of that is going on. Well, uh, I guess it's a blessing in disguise because I was not the person that took John Unitas's place. Right. In other words, never played on the same team with John. I just happened to play the same position as John for the same team a year after. Um, and it, it, it was an interesting year. Of course, that was 73. We still had the college all-star game. And uh, back then, they, they picked and chose who would go to the college all-star game. Uh, and it was myself and Joe Ferguson and um, Ken Huff. No, not Ken Huff. What Gary Huff. Gary Huff. Yeah, from Florida State with the three quarterbacks there. And coincidentally, my roommate was Joe Ferguson, who was also my roommate in the high school All-Star game in Baton Rouge. So four years later, we're roommate. we've always been good friends uh, through high school. And then he, he went to University of Arkansas and I went to LSU. So we never played against each other in college, but we were always maintained our friendship <clears throat> as do we to this day. Um, so, it, we went to the college all-star game and uh, um, on Northwestern campus in Chicago. And we stayed there for basically all of training camp. So my rookie year, I had no training camp at, at all uh, with the Baltimore Colts. So the first preseason game back then was the college all-stars against the Super Bowl champions, which was the Miami Dolphins, hence Paul Warfield. Uh, and, and so that was my first professional game uh, at the time. But then after that game, we all fly back to our respective teams. And, and I went uh, to Baltimore and, and I walk in and now we're in the middle of the preseason. <clears throat> so I, I, I had no tutelage from Howard Snellingberger, who was a great coach and, and was a great friend to his passing. Uh, and so I was behind the eight ball there, whereas now, as soon as you're drafted, you basically ship off and go figure out <clears throat> what the system is that you're going to be playing in. Uh, but back then, that, that was not done that way. And so uh, I, was, I was behind the power curve as, as it relates to my knowledge of that system, Howard Steinberger, but Howard, of course, coached with Don Shula, of which Don Shula was also a friend of my father's and a teammate uh, with the Browns. And so what was kind of funny is when I brought home my playbook, it was a Paul Brown derivative. And he goes, oh, I know this. He said, this is our system. Matter of fact, dig, dang, dog, uh, these are the terms that I made up for, for the pass routes. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, that's great. And, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, that was kind of funny. So under Howard, 
years, I, I was working under Paul Brown derivative system. Wow. And early on, you and Domris are basically not rotating, but you're both, you're, you're kind of splitting the starts, right? The, the first two years, I think? Uh, certainly the first year I started the first game and I didn't even know all the plays. And we, uh, or we might even won. I, I can't remember, but uh, I, I was not up to speed as it relates to playing the position in the professional league. Uh, and then Marty ended up coming in and taking my place. And then uh, the normal transition is you learn what's going on and then you go play it some more. Uh, and then the second year, it was interrupted by the NFL strike. The first one that interrupted, uh, you know, summer camp. And so once again, uh, I, I have no early tutelage from the coaches with the system and what we're going to do. And the first day we walk in is two days before our opening preseason game. Uh, and so once again, we lost all of, of training camp. And during that year, you mentioned uh, the firing of the coach for not putting in somebody. It's reverse of that because Marty was playing and Howard Snellingberger was, he, he told me, all right, you're about to go in. And actually, it was the owner. No, it was Joe Thomas or the owner. came down on the sidelines and said, put Burt Jones in. And I looked at Howard, and I just nodded my head, and I went and sat down because that was not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was going to happen, now it wasn't going to happen. Now it was not going to happen. So I, <laughs> I nodded my head. I knew exactly what, what the outcome was, and, and – uh, and we laughed about that often, but yeah, they, and so then at that point, they fired him when they got in the locker room. So then we have Joe Thomas as a coach who didn't even know what a playbook was. He's, he was a great recruiter of talent and he could wheel and deal and make good trades and get personnel, which he did for the Colts. But uh, if, if Joe had a fault, uh, we all have faults, but Joe's major fault as it relates to the development of a professional team is he didn't recognize how important the coaching staff was to a football team and it's paramount. I mean, you've got to, you know, that's why football is the greatest team sport there is, is because you can have a bunch of good guys or average guys, but if they work together as a cohesive 11 man unit, you'll be very competitive. And that's what a good coach does. He adjusts his, his talent to his personnel. Consequently, that's how uh, he attacks uh, another team and working together. But Joe didn't have a good field uh, of coaches. And uh, I think uh, after that, uh, uh, Ted Marchabrota came in and it showed just, first of all, the first thing I did during the offseason was I spent a month sitting at Ted Marshall brought aside learning the new system that he was putting in and so that we would be in harmony in our thought process, which was uh, a great uh, event for me because at that point I became on the, on a similar playing field instead of as it relates to understanding the, the, the things that I was supposed to do on the football field and how to call plays. And back then I called all the plays. 
which is rather unusual in today's time. And certainly understand why they do not, because it's a it's a major burden to not only figure out what you're supposed to do as on the play, but to understand my chair is about to turn over. <laughs> uh, but to, you know, be in harmony with me calling the play. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was a great event. And and in that year, after finishing two and twelve the year before, we won our first game, I think, in Chicago, and then we lost four in a row. But on each of these games, we were really competitive to the last, to the you know end of the fourth quarter. So it wasn't as if we were just being blown out. And then at that point, we started to run. We we, we were one and four, won the next game, and ultimately won nine straight uh, to to go to win the AFC East. Uh, division championship and be into the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, that's one of the more amazing runs, uh, you know, teams one in four and then just goes on this nine game winning streak. And let me just go back for a second. Joe Thomas, you said two things that both like just jumped off the page at me when I was, you know, kind of doing a little bit of research. One was you're right in the, in his first four years, there were five coaches I mean, that, that's almost impossible to do. He had McCafferty and Sandusky and Schnellenberger himself, and then Marcia Broda, um, which, you know, kind of underscores your point about not being able to figure out the coaching situation. But also you brought up his ability, you know, his talent in two drafts. Not only does he get you, but he brings in his entire front four on defense, Ehrman, and John, uh, um, uh, Joe Ehrman and Mike Barnes and John Dutton and Fred Cook. That's correct. Right before you got there, he's brought in like Del Mitchell uh, and and Glenn Dowdy. So, you know, he puts together the defensive front and the entire skill group. Uh, yeah. Uh, like I said, he, he had a great eye for talent and, and he had the ability to mold a team. And at, at the time, <clears throat> he valued a defensive line and skilled players. And he was correct in that assumption. And he had anchors in the offensive line also. At the same time, he traded and got George Coons as a right tackle. He traded and got Elmer Collett as a right guard. Ken Mendenhall, he had drafted two years prior. Then he got Robert Pratt uh, in the draft after me. <clears throat> and he got David Taylor the same year that he got me. I don't know if he was a free agent or not, or whether he was a late round draft. But he molded his offensive and defensive line within the first two years uh, that I was there, and 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 uh, it, it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then once <clears throat> he stood back and let the coaches coach, uh, we matured as a team and matured within the system. And and not only were we competitive, but we were a very good team. In 74, also, in addition to drafting Dutton and Cook, he also drafts Roger Carr from Louisiana Tech, another Louisiana guy, um, who over the next couple of years, like all of a sudden, when you guys start going on this playoff run, it seems like every year you've got Lydell Mitchell running for kind of 1,100 or 1,200 yards, and then you've got Lydell Mitchell, Raymond Chester, Glenn Doughty, Roger Carr, each catching you know for kind of five to 700 yards each. It's like very consistent every year. And then in 1976, Roger Carr goes crazy. You, you're the MVP that year, but Roger Carr 
catches his average yards per catch is 26 yards per catch. He catches 11 touchdowns. Those 11 touchdowns, I went back and did the math, 40 yards a catch on those 11 touchdowns. I mean, that's, that is just insane. What was it like working with Roger in those years? And, and really all those receivers. All the receivers were great to work with. Uh, I don't know that there's ever been a, a better possession pass receiver than Glenn Dowdy. If you got the ball to him, he was going to catch it. He was tough on the inside. He could, he could do more things on the quick slant than anybody. Raymond Chester was extremely talented as a blocker and a receiver. And then <clears throat> Roger came in on late. Now, Roger's a unique story in his own, own life. Um, he, he, Roger grew up in a broken family. So when he was in high school, he, he moved to Cotton Valley, Louisiana from Oklahoma where his father and mother lived. Um, and uh, they didn't have football at Cotton Valley, but he ran track. And, and his grandmother said, Roger, you have to go to college. And, and so he, he came to Louisiana Tech and his freshman year, during his freshman year, uh, they had an intramural track meet. Uh, and, and so Roger came out and he broad jumped like 24 feet you know, better than anybody on Louisiana Tech's team. And Jimmy Myers, who was a dear friend of my father's and mine, uh, he says, Roger, he says, man, I tell you what, if, if you'll run track for me and Brock Jump, <clears throat> I will, um, I'll pay for your books. And, and he goes, well, that's a deal. That means I've got a little more money that I could spend. So he, he broad jumped for Louisiana Tech uh, the spring of that freshman year. And, and it just coincidentally, the track was around the practice field. And so they had practice and before practice, Roger, they had a bag of balls where the punter was and he started punting the ball. And he was just booming on, <laughs> you know, just beyond your comprehension. And so a football coach looked over there and said, who is this guy? Says Roger Carr from Cotton Valley. He he's a walk-on track guy, and they said, "Well, let's see if he can punt the ball." Well, needless to say, he was a great punter. And then, you know, everybody has to run wind sprints, and all of a sudden they look and they see this guy, and he's twice as fast as anybody on the whole team. He goes, Man, "Let's see if we can get this guy to play receiver, something." And so they. They get him to come, and then they hit him a few times. He says, oh, no, I'm not going to do this. I quit. This is too rough for me. <laughs> but uh, eventually, they, he, he, he left a couple of times, said, I'd just rather do track and let them. And they said, well, you know, if you'll play receiver for us, not only will we pay for your, we'll pay for your room and board and tuition, and you'll get free meals every day. And so <laughs> this was the – a real deal. I mean, he came from Cotton Valley, and I'm telling you, he was so country, his breath smelled like pine knots. I mean, he was <laughs> country, country. And so he said, this is the deal. Yeah, all right, until they hit him a few times. But make a long story short, he eventually, you know, got to the point where, hey, this is all right, and he became very good receiver, but nobody knew about him because he only played a year and a half of college. Yeah. And 
through that, they obviously found out that he was one whale of a talent and, and Baltimore drafted him number one. So that's how he got there. So, and then his rookie year, he kind of pulled a hamstring and, and he still didn't like to get hit. Uh, and so it was kind of, this is our number one draft choice and he's going to flame out with a little strained hamstring and doesn't want to get hit. Well, second year, he, he came on, and then, like you said, third year, he was just gangbusters, just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we played in the Pro Bowl together, and he and Cliff Branch kind of had a, a, a race, and he was as fast as Cliff Branch, who was an Olympic sprinter. I mean, he was a guy I played with uh, in, in my whole career. Yeah. But he, but that's how Roger became a wide receiver. <laughs> wow. I, did, I didn't realize that whole story. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, going back and watching the clips, I mean, I, I, I had to write it down. The shortest of those 11 touchdowns, one was 16 yards, one was 18 yards. And then it's like 22, 31, 36, 40, 65, 78. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, yeah, I, literally his 11 touchdowns averaged 40 yards a catch. And, you know, just him loping down the field. It's just, it was just amazing. Yeah, but he was unbelievable. And his expo- his acceleration to a football was, uh, you know, it was like it turned on a light bulb. He just, just uh, sped up. I, my old, my college roommate was a pretty good football player, too, a guy named Tommy Casanova. Sure. Who played for Cincinnati, or Dr. Casanova. Uh, and he was a three-time All-American at LSU and uh, still – a great guy and was then, but he was on the track to become uh, all the Cincinnati Bengals will laugh, but Paul Brown was still coaching uh, uh, Cincinnati. And Tommy told him, look, I'm going to medical school in the fall. That's just the way it is. And so they weren't going to waste a number one draft choice if you weren't going to come to school. And so Paul Brown called daddy and, and he said, can you talk to Bert? And, and see if Tommy is serious about medical school. And I said, yeah, well, they're roommates. I guess he can. <laughs> and, and so I, he, I said, yeah, he's going to medical school. His, his father's a doctor in Crowley, Louisiana, and that's his path. And he was very disciplined about how he, you know, did his things. And so Paul uh, did a little scheming, but he went to the University of Cincinnati. And he said, look, I have this candidate that is a great football player, but he's not going to play football unless he can go to medical school. Will you see if his credentials are good enough to go to University of Cincinnati Medical School? And I have a feeling Bengals probably made a contribution to it. But he was a great student anyway. But to make a long story short, uh, he, he, Daddy got that out of it. If he can go to medical school, he will play now. And so Paul got him so that he could go to medical school and play football, but he only took two courses in the fall and then doubled up in the spring and the summer. And so he, he, while his rookie year, he was in medical school at the University of Cincinnati and played for the Cincinnati Bengals. And, and I think they got him in like the third or fourth round in the draft, which was just a steal because everybody thought you were just wasting uh, uh, wasting a draft because he was going to medical school. Uh, right. But what I figure out is how to get him in medical school in the town you want him to play in. And, and, and it worked. 
Very <laughs> from medical school, he retired from football. <laughs> it's amazing. That's right. Yeah, his career was only like four or five years, right? Something like that. I think it was six or seven. He okay. didn't hurt me, but you know, it took him uh, about one and three quarters the normal length to get through medical school because he, you know, he was working during the day, during the fall. Right. Okay. Oh, that's that's a fascinating story. Yeah, I, I knew he had gone to med school, but I, I certainly didn't know the background to that. That's that's really cool. Um, and and tell me also about Lydell Mitchell because he I, I interviewed Chuck Foreman on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I kind of view Chuck Foreman and Lydell Mitchell, and then like r- later Roger Craig as that kind of new breed of running back who's you know a threat to run, a threat to catch. You know, they could they could kind of do it all, and and obviously Chuck and Lydell kind of came along at about the same time. Uh, what was it like having him in the background? Well, Back Lydell, Chuck Foreman and I came out the same year in 73. Matter of fact, we played in college in the Senior Bowl together and in the College All-Star game together. Uh, and what a talent he was. He was a great player. Uh, they, they ultimately had similar successes. Uh, Lydell was a great interior runner. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Lydell was not really very fast. Uh, matter of fact, he, he would be categorized as slow for a running back, but extremely talented, could read the block, could read the reads, make the right cuts, do all things. And so, but he wasn't fast enough to run a sweep. Yeah. Uh, so most of his uh, yards gained were literally from tight end to tackle on the other side. And then we, we incorporated Lydell into the passing game to get that outside pressure on a defense because they would just compress. And, and so then we'd throw flare passes and put him in motion. And that's how he got to the outside. But he was really a great running back and a good guy. I spoke to him uh, a month or two ago, and he's, he seems to be doing well and all is good. He and Franco came out together. Uh, they played what junior college? What was the name of that school? Penn State? Isn't that a junior college? <laughs> yeah, and then and then they went into business together, didn't they? After their careers? Yeah, still. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's funny. Um, and then so then you guys keep the run going. 75, 76, 76 You're the MVP with you know all these guys putting up great numbers, and obviously you putting up huge numbers. 77 team goes 10 and four again, goes to the playoffs. Um, I, I should point out that that 76 team, I interviewed Mel Blunt, who I'm going to ask you about in a little bit more detail later, but that, I, I think a lot of guys on that 76 Steelers team feel like that was the best team. One of, one of, in that whole run, it was one of the years they didn't win. Um, I think that was because ultimately when they went out to play Oakland for the championship game, both of their running backs were hurt. Um, but a lot of guys think that that was the best team they ever had. Their defense gave up like 10 points in the last nine games or something crazy like that, or I think 28 points in the last nine games. Um, but the, so your season ended against them. What was it like, you know, kind of going up against the Steelers, you know, a couple of years in a row in the playoffs? Well, we played the Steelers twice in the playoffs and Oakland once. And if you go look in the seventies, you'll see who won the Super Bowl every year, right. Steelers and uh, of course, the AFC was dominant at that time, and uh, but I, I, I have never the best football team I ever played against, without doubt, was that Pittsburgh Steelers team. Matter of fact, uh, if 
back then everybody did everything to get out of the Pro Bowl. 75, I got out of it. 77, I got out of it by faking an injury or something because, you know, you were exposing yourself to injury because it was a real game. Right. I think 76, I, I, I didn't have anything. 75, yeah. And so I played in the Pro Bowl because uh, I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I lined up in practice, and there were nine Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> playing defense. I said, hell, I just lost to y'all a couple of weeks ago. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, Did I lose I mean, a bet? <laughs> unbelievable. And and I know you're going to talk about it later, but Mel Blunt was without a doubt the best football player I ever played against. I had more respect for him as a player uh, and his tenacity on the field and his sheer dominance of one half of the football field than anybody else. I mean, yeah, they had great players. Joe Green, L.C. Greenwood, Jack Lambert, you know, Andy Russell, Jack Ham. Johnny Shell, Wagner, uh, they were all great players. But the best of the lot was Mel Blunt, the absolute best. Yeah. He, he yeah, amazing. And it's funny, I, I interviewed Charlie Joyner on this show uh, a couple months ago. And I said, you know, you're lined up at wide receiver, you know, who are you looking out for? And he said, let's just put it this way. You always knew where Ronnie Lott was and you always knew where Mel Blunt was. <laughs> you made sure of that as a wide receiver. Yeah. He and Tommy Casanova were very similar in their play. They both just had the ability to explode through a tackle or hit as hard as anybody on the football field. But they're also like uh, a bobcat. They could move in any direction as fast as they could, forward, back, sideways. Uh, The only other person I would put in that category was Joe Washington that I played with. I mean, he can move sideways as quick as anybody could move straight and in, in, in a straight line. Uh, but they were just cat-like. I mean, they were unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny you bring up Joe Washington. Literally, at the end, I've got, you know, tell me about these, like, handful of players that you played with, and Joe Washington is one of them. Because I know it was kind of towards the end of your time with the Colts. But he had such a – you know, he was just so dominant in his Oklahoma days <coughs> – and uh, and and obviously, you know, played with you guys and played with the Redskins. Um, yeah, tell, tell me a little bit more about him, Joe Washington. Well, first, Joe is one of my dearest friends, so I'm, I'm prejudiced in my opinion. Right. Uh, Joe Meadowlark and my wife, Danny, and I have been friends uh, for, for forever uh, and still get together uh, at least once or twice a year just on a friendship basis. But Joe was just a tremendous player. You know, the, the Barry Sanders, the Joe Washingtons, you know, these guys that just the uncanny ability to, to run full speed and then all of a sudden be going full speed to the right. It was the John Browns thing I have ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and even though he wore glasses and in theory couldn't see, the man had had peripheral vision and sensors out here where he knew where everybody was. He was just a tremendous talent. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's turn and punt, kickoff, receiver, or running back, he could do it all. And he's not a bad tennis player except for his knees, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, 
and then so so it's funny. So so Robert Ursay owns the team, and you know you have the you have the situation where um, uh, Don McCafferty is is fired midseason. You have the situation where Howard Schnellenberger is fired after a game, and then was it the '77 season where you guys are a playoff team? And you're in the preseason, and I guess you have a bad showing up in Detroit. And he comes in and rips everybody in the locker room. And uh, Ted Marchabroda quits on the spot. Is that is that how the story went? And then and then ultimately the coordinators said that they were going to leave also. And so three days later they worked it out. And Marchabroda came back, but it sounded like it was you know yet another example of a you know a coaching situation in the middle of the season. Well. Yeah, it was it was worse than that. Um, uh, it, it, it falls back to one, you know, I think Joe Thomas's major shortcoming in, in that he didn't respect that which a coach did and how important it was to the success of the team. And so he he, he came in and lambasted everybody, and, and Joe Thomas did too, and. He was pressuring them to do this, but and and so Ted just says, "Look, I I, I can do this," and uh, I don't know if he resigned or they. He said, "I'm not going to do that," or whether they fired him. And this is a week before we open against New England, <laughs> and so basically, I I called a meeting. And uh, my brother was a labor lawyer for Vincent Elkins in Houston. Uh, and I, I called him. I said, Bill, uh, we're going we're going to have a wildcat strike. And he said, you got to be ready. <laughs> he managed. He was a labor lawyer for management. He says, well, here's what you got to do. You got to come out there. And so I held a press conference because at the time I was probably the most bullet proof guy we had on the team uh, as a quarterback and I and uh, I said we're not going to play unless Ted Marchabroder uh, is, is our coach I said I called Pete Rosell I said Pete this is not going to happen you've got to reinstate Ted Marchabroder as the coach I called Mayor Schaefer I said Mayor we're not going to play uh, if, if we don't get this back, he became the governor of Maryland. And so it was a pretty big event. Uh, I had a couple of conversations with Pete Rosell, the commissioner and to make a long story short, it got worked out, but we practiced and we didn't do anything until Wednesday before the game. And I want you to know there was a whole lot. I felt a whole lot of pressure opening up against new England in new England, having not practiced at all, and having just called a wildcat strike and reinstating our coach, uh, I, I think I use the analogy is, you know, I was in the lumber business back then also, but uh, I said, you know, you can get bricks and lumber and put it on the lot, but it does not make a house. It requires a carpenter and a team to work together to frame it up and make it into a house. Same way with a football team. You, you, you can have all the players on the sidelines, but if you don't have a coach to mold them, shape them, and, and, and get them in a system that'll work, you're not going to be any good. And, yeah. and so uh, I, uh, that's how it happened. So, yeah, 
I think that is the only wildcat strike in the history of the NFL. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm, I'm stunned. I have not heard anything about that. I, I just found like one small little passage talking about March and Broda quitting. And I think Maxie Bond was the DC. And he said, you know, well, if he's not coaching, I'm not going to coach. I, I'm amazed that like, that more hasn't been made of that. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I would encourage you to call Jeff Marks who was the ball boy at the time, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, writer uh, who wrote a book about it, but he kept all the notes and actually he went into the trash can and got my speech out of the trash can. I didn't know this until about six or eight months ago, I was talking to him and he's writing kind of uh, uh, the day in the life of a ball boy and, and how he did all of these things. Of course, a lot of that revolved because I was a ball boy. He was at a tennis camp and I coerced him to carry my helmet to the locker room and he parlayed it into a full-time summer job and then uh, would do that. And then he went off to Northwestern and became a writer for the Lexington, uh, whatever the paper was there. And then uh, ESPN, mag oh, Frank DeForge Magazine. Uh, oh, the National? Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, but he told me the other day, he says, I was going through my stuff. You're not going to believe what I found. I found the notes from when you pulled the wildcat strike uh, in Baltimore. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. That so, is so cool. Yeah. That's amazing. And just, and think of that. So between, 72, the year before you got there, and what was that, 77 that this happened? It was, it was while you guys were a playoff team. Yeah, it was, so, it, was, it was just before opening game in 1977. Okay. So in the span of five years, you have three different situations where a coach is either, you know, fired in the locker room after a game or, you know, told the next day because he didn't play a guy the day before. I mean, it's just incredible. It's just crazy. And like, and it's amazing to think that in those years, you know, kind of starting right about then all of a sudden, you know, well, you get hurt, you, you separate your shoulder. Well, uh, that was the year following. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Right. 77 year playoff team. And, um, and that's the year that's the ghost to the post game against the Raiders in overtime. Um, the, what, second overtime, right? Yeah. You lose to them. Um, and then the next year, 78, is you separate your shoulder fairly early in the season. And for the next two years, you're only able to play a handful of games. That is correct. I, I separated my shoulder the week before the opening game of the season. Preseason. Preseason. Yeah. Uh, why was I playing at that time? Uh, who knows? Uh, but, but it is what it is. And it was a good run and all great. And then it took me because I was, really stupid because I compare it to a spring green branch you know it looks green and strong and everything is good uh, you know after three or four weeks uh, I would heal and then I'd go back in and then I'd take another hit and it would go out again uh, so it took me about a year and a half before I was ever able to play again right and by then I'm sorry go ahead and, and what was funny, I shouldn't tell this story, but it's the truth. I, gambling is, is uh, 
all all there is about and when the NFL is being sponsored by Caesars, you know it's okay. Uh, of course, I don't gamble. I, I have a gentleman's bet. My mother told me early on that anything over a dollar is gambling, and we don't gamble. Uh, and so uh, a friend of mine who was equipment manager at LSU and later in life uh, found out that he was also, uh, I don't know if you'd call him a bookie, but he was, he was well-connected. <laughs> he knew people yeah he knew people that knew people uh and he said bert i just want you to know you have set a record and i said what is that he said you have moved the point spread more in one day than anybody has ever done it in the nfl because during that time if i was out of the game we lost if we played if i played in the game we won i mean we were like three and who knows? You can you can look it up. But then I was like eleven and one when I played. Right. And he said you moved the point spread when they announced you're going to play on Saturday. It went. You moved it nine points in <laughs> one day. He said that's never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I saw. I think those two years, seventy eight and seventy nine, when you're you know kind of trying to come back from the shoulder. I think you were three and one and four and one on teams that were like five and 11 and seven. And, you know, like, I think they were both five and 11. So yeah. It, yeah. Basically you play, you win, you don't play, you don't win. Pretty right. simple. <laughs> um, and at this point, Ursa is starting to drive some guys, turn some guys away, like Lydell Mitchell, John Dutton, a few guys are starting to say, I I've had enough. I got to get out of here. Um, yeah. A whole lot of players. and. and uh, let's see, how do I say this? Uh, this is not being negative, but, uh, and I appreciate Bob Ursay and Jimmy Ursay, his son, it, it is a dear friend. So, sure. uh, but Bob had some demons. Yep. Uh, you know, he, 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 he had some, some chemical dependency on alcohol and it, it, it made him a, and he was a mean drunk. Uh, but sober, he was a nice guy and everything good. But he had a, uh, a heating and air conditioning. You know, his business in Chicago was not doing well. And the Colts were a cash cap uh, back then and even to today, more so back then because all the 90% of the revenue was TV. Right now, they, everybody has to build a big stadium because essentially they share the pool back then. 60 for home team, 40 for away. And, you know, if you were competitive, every, every, every game was sold out. But that was the only variable in, in your gross income were, were the ticket sales because all the TV revenue is what really uh, carried the load for, for the teams. And so he basically drained the Colts of cash to pay for other businesses outside of it. And, you know, having a big contract uh, meant that he was going to spend more money this year. And so all the really good players uh, continued to go by the wayside, you know, demand to be traded, play out their option and go somewhere else. Yeah. The, then there's in your, in your last year in Baltimore, the team is two and 14. Obviously it's, it's, it's most, I can only imagine it's a miserable year. Um, at one point during the season, 
he's in the press box. He gets on the phone. He starts calling plays to, to the coach, Mike McCormick. What was, what was, first of all, is that accurate? And second of all, what was that like, you know, being the quarterback when your owner is calling the plays? Well, that was accurate. He, he got into the coach's press box and started telling him to tell me. And the way he did it is uh, he, he, he sent the play in with the alternate quarterback. You know, I was in the game, and next thing I know, Greg Landry is tapping me on the shoulder and said, you're out. I said, okay. So I go to the bench and sit down. Well, what do you do when you've been benched? I've never been benched, uh, which is – I don't mean that as a bragging point, but, you know, I, yeah, to that time, I had never been benched in my career in sports. Uh, I've been injured, but I haven't been taken out because of performance. And, and actually, my performance was individually was probably better in the last uh, 81, 80, 79 were better than they were in all the other times. Uh, you know, my, we were terrible. We didn't have any support and, and we didn't have any stuff. But yes, in Philadelphia, he did that. He took me out. Greg Landry went in there. And next thing I know, they come to get me off the bench. And Mike McCormick says, go in there and do this. And I'm going, you just took me out. This is, this is not kosher. You know, this is not, not something that you do. Don't. And, and, and then come up. Bob Ursay is telling me to do this. And so he, I said, well, what did he say? He said, go in and throw it to Roger Carr. So I went in and handed it off to Lydell. <laughs> <laughs> and this, we hadn't done anything offensively. And every time he sent me in there, I did just the opposite. Give it to Lydell. I would throw it to Glenn Dowdy or Roger Carr. <laughs> So this is going back and forth, back and forth. And, and the moral of the story is we ultimately scored <laughs> doing the wrong compared to what he said. And so that was shameful and, and it was embarrassing uh, for me to have to have my head coach put up with something like that, you know. And, and I, I know it was truly demeaning to Mike McCormick. I don't think he really ever got over that that aspect of, of the game of having been basically shamed as a coach. Uh, so that was a tough time. Yeah. But yeah. Did, and then they fired. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he, by the way, he had played with your father too, right? That is also correct. Everybody <laughs> that, you know, I mean, you know, I was one generation before and, and they all went into coaching, you know, Don Shuler, Air Force Asian, the Sandusky, John Sandusky, uh, McCafferty, uh, you know, Mike McCormick, uh, just go down the list. Yeah. It's, it's like every guy you prepared for on, uh, on Sundays had been your dad's teammate, you know, 20 years prior. It's pretty funny. Right. So, well, so, so 81, obviously disaster. And like what you say, you know, is happening with, you know, the, the owner and, and McCormick and obviously you guys are two and 14 and the writing's on the wall. And so, and then, McCormick is fired and they hire Frank Cush who comes in from Arizona state. And at this point you're looking to get traded also, right? Oh, I, I, I was gone. Yeah. Uh, last game of the year, I put up a note saying, send my mail to Denver or LA. And, 
And and the year prior, I had played my option. Yeah, I mean, you were you were locked in. There wasn't any way to get out. You know, if, if you played out your contract, uh, and you know, it doesn't need to be repeated a whole lot. But you know, we had a verbal agreement. Bob Ursay said, "All right, here's what we're going to do." And he said, but I can't do it now because that means I, I have to disclose what I'm paying these guys and I don't want to tell my bank. I said, okay, uh, we'll settle up. And so at the end of the year, he obviously didn't pay me. And I said, that's it. We're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and so uh, you find out you're traveling with Archie Manning, who is not only a competitor, but also a good buddy of yours, right? Mine today. Yeah. And you're, you're traveling with him to go to uh, so, like a photograph shoot, right? Of some kind. Yeah. We were, we were, we were both working for Nike, uh, making the big bucks. Uh, and we had, they, they did a, a studio photograph called field generals. It was myself and Archie and I think Warren moon, uh, Danny Fouts, just a whole bunch of them. We dressed up. Uh, well, here, I've got a picture of it. Archie sent me one. He said, do you have this? And I said, my children have one. I guess I could go look at it and tell you who's in it. Uh, but sure. and so we were at the photograph shoot, and they come in and said, Bert, you've just been traded to L.A. I went, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just that you, you feel the anvil being lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. It, it was great, but yeah. you know, I, I, I would not do anything differently in Baltimore. I, the city of Baltimore is one of my favorite places to visit, even to this day. I have dear friends from my team and from the community that I still go back and visit. It, it's just uh, a wonderful place to play, and and I think one of the best places to play as it relates to the fan base. I'll never forget. I went back to when they brought the Ravens back to a game and I knew everybody in the stands because, you know, tickets were seven bucks, 12 bucks, something like that. And I always went out before the game and warmed up. So I knew where all the hecklers were. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I recognized them even years later, but uh, they knew when to cheer and they knew when to boo and, right. and times for both while I was there. Yeah. I mean, how crush as a as a former as as a former Colt, how crushing was it then, you know, kind of two years later or three years later after you left when he moved them in the middle of the night? Well, uh, there was a time that I lived uh, a very schizophrenic life because I grew up as a Cleveland Browns fan and then the Browns left and I, I played as a Baltimore Colts. And the Colts left. So I was a man without a team. Uh, I, I've since bridged the gap and, and enjoy all of it and like to watch the people that are, I'm friends with in the league. Uh, so it, it's all good. But it was kind of a, uh, a weird feeling not to have a team that you were associated with all that time in the city that it was. Yeah. And then, and then oh, by the way, the team you went to, the Rams, granted it was a short stay, but then they moved. So at one point, everybody you had contact with had been moved at some point. Uh, true. Uh, literally everybody that I played for and with uh, moved to a different city. Wow. 
And the, and the Rams, obviously, you get there, and that's a strike season also, 82. And you play a couple games, you get hurt, you come back, you rupture your a disc in your neck, right, in the first game back or the second game back after the strike? Well, it's the first game that we interrupted the actual season through a collective bargaining agreement uh, lockout or strike. And uh, it literally... <clears throat> the, the the game after the strike, we were playing in Atlanta, and uh, uh, my center missed the nose tackle, came around, and he, and he grabbed my left arm and fell down behind me, and I was holding the ball trying to get rid of it. And back then, they taught you to hit to the echo of the whistle. There wasn't... Uh, there wasn't a rule in the grasp, which is a great rule and has extended the ten, you know, the playing time of of all the players. And I think that's an excellent choice. But a guy named Fulton Kuykendall had about a six-yard run to start. And I'm standing up like this, trying to get down. I couldn't get down because the guy was under me. I couldn't go from side to side. And so I guess this way, and, and his helmet hit me right under the chin, full speed. Mm-hmm. And so it hurt because it dislocated and broke my jaw. And then so I, I called timeout and went to the sidelines. I got Dr. Curlin to pull my jaw back in place. And then I finished that game. And then the next week, my father-in-law, who had uh, a heart issue and a coronary issue, and I knew that when you lost feeling in your left arm, you may be having a coronary issue. And I go to Dr. Curlin before the next game, I said, Doc, I said, this is weird. I said, you know, my blood pressure, you know, 68 over 110, and my pulse is 45 to 60, depending on how much rest I've had. And I, I said, but do you think I could be having a coronary issue? And he said, no, but how's your neck? Because my whole left arm was going intermittently asleep. And I said, no. He said, well, how's your neck? And I said, well, it, it hurts. Uh, but the main thing is my jaw because we couldn't wire it closed because I had to talk. So, you know, it's the old theory you have a headache, get somebody hit you in the stomach and you forget about your headache. I had a different issue that I was worried about. Uh, and so he said, well, let me see about that. And so I played the next game and then I took a pretty good hit and I lost all the feeling in my left side. And it was really weird. It didn't hurt other than my neck and my jaw. Uh, and so I went to hand the ball off. Normally you do it like this, but I couldn't feel my left hand. So I handed the ball off like that. And I went to the sideline after that series and Dr. Curlin said, let me see your hand. And so he said, he said, what's going on? He said, I, I can't feel it. And, he's, and he got his little pen knife he used to carry and he stuck my finger and he stuck another finger and it started bleeding. And he goes, you don't feel that? I said, no. <laughs> wow. And he said, you're out. But ultimately what it was is I fractured the fifth cervical and, and ruptured the disc and had to have a cervical fusion and that's what ended. So I played two games out there, broke my neck. Yeah. Uh, it was really stupid, uh, <laughs> but it is. You know, I fell off the turnip truck uh, and probably hit my head many years ago. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, so you retire smartly after that because you're told basically you could become a quadriplegic if you take another bad hit. And then years later, uh, 
you're probably not 40 yet, but years later, you're in one of those, you know, kind of quarterback competitions and you win, like the retired quarterbacks and you win. And Bobby Bethard, who knows his way around Super Bowl championships, is interested in signing you. And you think about it or no? I, I did. I, uh, I, let's see. I, I, I retired when I was 31. And that was when I was 37. And then after we won the old guys, you know, the Archie and the Steve Bartkowski and the Theismann and everybody, they said, well, why don't you throw against the young kids tomorrow? And, and I hadn't picked up a football since I retired, literally, you know. Uh, it was kind of a weird thing. I just transitioned out. I checked it out. And so I said, sure. Well, I almost won against all the young kids. Uh, uh, and, the, and that's when Bobby said, I thought you hurt your arm. I said, no, I separated my shoulder, but that got well. He said, well, what happened? He said, well, I fractured six cervical and had a cervical fusion. He said, well, I think you can play. And I said, oh, no. They said, don't play. And so he said, well, look, you, you find whatever doctor you want to and go see if they think you can play. So I wanted to go to Baltimore and visit some folks. So I went to Baltimore to a doctor and he said, you know, I, you, you might can't. So then I went to uh, Elmer Collett, my offensive right guard, lived right out of San Francisco. I said, I'd like to go to San Francisco. Let me find a doctor there. So I flew out to San Francisco and, and he said, you know, you might can do it. And I said, I talked to Bobby. I said, well, you know, before, am I going to be wearing a baseball cap and have a clipboard? He said, no, I want you to play. And I said, well, let me think about it. And he said, well, here are the terms. Here, his opening statement was like three times what I made at the end of my career, and I was the highest paid player in the league at the time. And so I'm going, whoa, let me think about this. So then I called Dr. Curlin, and I said, Dr. Curlin, they'd see you. They said, okay. So he came out there, and this is pre-MRI days. Uh, so it was all x-ray and stuff. He said, Bert, I, I told you you had to retire before, and I think you still need to stay retired. Just go turkey hunting and enjoy life. You've got a good lumber business to stay in. And he said, you know, if I say you can play now after having told you to retire. And so I said, you know, you're probably right. right. <laughs> so I, I was pretty settled. I had my children in school. And uh, whether you want to, whether you say this not, being a professional football player or a professional coach, it's kind of a disruptive family environment because. You know, I would go to the office first thing in the morning and get home after dark. And then, as my wife said, I could, here's, here's the way your week went. If you won on Sunday, Monday was a lot of fun. Tuesday, you went to the Eastern Shore and, and got into the outdoors with your love. And then Tuesday night was your first meeting. Wednesday was kind of okay. Thursday, you get a little uptight. And by Friday, I need to find you or me a hotel because you're not you're, you're, I can't tolerate your stress at this level. <laughs> and so I said, you know, uh, I, I don't need to re-enter that, into that world of, of uh, just the way it was. Right. Yeah. I guess fl flattering to be asked though, right? 
flattering to be asked. And, and as much money as he offered me at the time, which would be nothing now, right. uh, it was like, whoa, it's changed yeah. six years. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, and one thing that I referenced at the very beginning, um, I guess two, two things I want to do. Uh, one is just to ask you, I mentioned the Louisiana quarterbacks. There was a time, I think it was like right around 80 or 81, something like that, where five or six of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL were Louisianans. It was obviously Bradshaw from Shreveport, uh, David Woodley, I think from Shreveport, Joe Ferguson from Shreveport, uh, Woodley being with the Dolphins, obviously Ferguson, you mentioned earlier up in Buffalo, yourself, and Doug Williams. You know, growing up in North Louisiana, there was something in the water. I mean, uh, I played against Terry Bradshaw in high school, played against Joe Ferguson in high school, played against Doris Weiss in high school, who was a starting quarterback for Denver. Let's see. You had David Woodley out of Shreveport. You had Doug Williams, who I worked out with every day. You had James Harris. Uh, let's see. And I know I'm forgetting some, some of them. But there were five or six quarterbacks that literally grew up within an hour drive of everybody and played against each other. Um, and I live in a small community called Ruston, and the sister community to Ruston is Grambling. Ruston has Louisiana Tech, and Grambling has Grambling State. And uh, my father and Coach Eddie Robinson were best friends all of my life. And so every day during the offseason, I would work out at Grambling because they always had players I could throw to. And, and when, when Grambling transitioned from the wing tee to a pro set, my father brought the playbook down from the Browns and, and transitioned with Coach Rob with that. And what was funny is since it was a Paul Brown derivative, when I went into the league, I came back and every year I would make adjustments to, to the playbook and how you can do different things. And, and so Coach Robinson and I were dear friends until his passing and uh, still friends with his grandchildren now. But oh, we all grew up the same hat. And, you know, Charlie Joyner, you mentioned – uh, they were just a gazillion players that I played, worked out with every day that were in, in Grambling. Yeah. Uh, Doug Williams. Let's see. We, we can just go down the list. So James Harris was, was there in the late 60s. Which there. Uh, he was a little ahead of me, but, you know, I worked out. And I went to – when I was in high school, I went to both – if Louisiana Tech played at home, I'd go there. But most of the time they would alternate where Grambling would be at home the week the Tech was gone. So I was going to, we had tickets at the Grambling and do now. I have season tickets for, for Louisiana Tech and Grambling State uh, to this day. So I still go to both schools to watch football on the weekend. That's great. Yeah, it's amazing. And then, and then obviously with the Mannings and, you know, everything else, it's just amazing the, uh, the track record the state has for, uh, for producing quarterbacks. Our kids and his kids, we all kind of grew up in the same lot. You know, matter of fact, at that event uh, that you were talking about, that quarterback challenge, Daddy and my, my mother and father came out there and Archie and had his boys. And so we were we were laughing. Uh, Peyton still tells the story. My, my father is, is pretty programmed in that we were playing golf. And so we were hitting across – Oh, it was a part three, a long part three, and he hit it in the water. And so we were all getting ready to go up. And I said, y'all don't need to leave yet. He's going to 
stay right here until he makes that shot. <laughs> so Peyton laughed. He said, "You know, it, it was like what was that moving movie with Kevin Costner? Uh, Tin Cup. Tin Cup. It was just like that. It was pre Tin Cup. I mean, he just sat there until he made that shot. Uh, and Peyton laughed about that. And we all laughed about it. Uh, that's, that's awesome. It was. That's awesome. Um, well, I have to ask the question." Uh, I'm always curious about, you know, somebody who played at the level you did. We talked about Mel Blunt, but who were some of the other defensive backs or linebackers or D linemen that you lined up against where you just thought, oh, God, you know, this is going to be all day, isn't it? Who were, the, who were the guys that, you know, really got your attention? You know, there's only one guy in the NFL that I went, oh, my goodness, i got to play against it, and that was Mel Blunt. <laughs> the rest of them I felt like I could handle but Mel Blunt literally dominated the football field uh, playing against them now there were just other tremendous players of course New England Mike Haynes Claiborne uh, you know you had you had great players uh, for the Miami Dolphins you know right after their Super Bowl Jake Scott Anderson you know they were all great players let's see who else uh, you, you just you know, they're all in the Hall of Fame and, and they were, were just tremendous players. Yeah. And who, who were who were the quarterbacks today that you look at, you know, that you watch and you say, wow, that guy plays a nice game? <laughs> Every one of them. Yeah. I mean, the talent that they possess as a quarterback is just phenomenal. I think Aaron Rodgers is just over the top great. Mahomes, I mean, they, these guys have skills. Uh, you know, I was always an untypical quarterback. You know, everybody, when I was growing up, they taught you to hold the ball like this. Uh, that wasn't my style. I mean, uh, I'll never forget Ted Marcher Broder did uh, a whole lot of, of studying uh, how fast the release was. And, and he went through all the quarterbacks with, with you know, uh, timing the frames because back then it was film. And you take Joe Namath. I mean, Joe had the ball wherever he had the ball. And I was kind of the same way. But the guys today, I mean, they throw a sidearm over the top, around the corner. It's just it's just unbelievable stuff that they can do. Yeah. Uh, it's just great talents, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, let me do this. This has been great. It's been great hearing all the stories. I love it. I want to wrap up by just reading two quotes. One is short. One is a little bit longer, but I think it's great because I think it kind of sums up. If anybody takes the time to you know, watch some of the clips or anything, this, this kind of sums everything up. The first one is from one of the tougher guys to ever play in the game. John Riggins says that you were the toughest competitor I ever saw. Pretty high praise coming from John Riggins. Um, and then you mentioned Bill Belichick was like a kind of a junior assistant in 1975 for one year right out of college. Um, he was he said, first of all, you were the best pure passer he ever saw. And then somebody asked him before one of the Super Bowls a couple of years ago, besides his own quarterback, Tom Brady, who would he take? And he says, I'd put Burt Jones right up there. I absolutely would. A tremendous player, very athletic an arm like no other. He was a tremendous quarterback. Very high praise come from Bill Belichick, but you know he he was natural. I knew he was going to. He was so studious, following Ted Marchabroda and Maxie Ball. He was. I, I knew he was going to be a great coach. 
And John Riggins, what a great player he was. I mean, I played against him when he was with the Jets, and then I played against him when he was with the Redskins. And, and he was one of those guys that you just knew. I mean, artificial turf didn't fit John Reagan's. Right. <laughs> he, he was a mud and dirt kind of guy. I mean, he was as close to dirt and as strong a player as I have ever seen. And the guy had unbelievable talent. I mean, you know, he was so big and so strong, but a lot of people don't know he was pretty John Brown fast, too. Yeah. But those are, without a doubt, Extremely nice compliments by two people that I hold in high esteem for their performances and their talents and their professionalism. That's good. That's very cool. Well, look, Bert, thank you very much for coming on to Chasing Hardware. Can't tell you how how enjoyable it's been hearing the stories about you know the days in LSU, your father's career, obviously the days with the Colts, and you know and everything else. Thank you very much for coming on. And thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.